Letter sixteen of Clarissa Harlowe or the History of a Young Lady, Volume seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Clarissa Harlowe or the History of a Young Lady, Volume seven by Samuel Richardson. Letter sixteen. Mr. Belford to Robert Lovelace, Esquire, Monday, July seventeenth. About six this morning, I went to Rowland's. Mrs. Sinclair was to follow me, in order to dismiss the action but not to come in sight. Rowland, upon inquiry, told me that the lady was extremely ill, and that she had desired that no one but his wife or maid should come near her. I said, I must see her. I had told him my business overnight, and I must see her. His wife went up, but returned presently, saying she could not get her to speak to her, yet that her eyelids moved, though she either would not or could not open them to look up at her. Wounds, wounds, said I. The lady may be in a fit. The lady may be dying. Let me go up. Show me the way a horrid hole of a house in an alley they call a court stairs wretchedly narrow even to the first-floor rooms and into a den they led me with broken walls which had been papered as i saw by a multitude of tacks and some torn bits held on by the rusty heads the floor indeed was clean but the ceiling was smoked with variety of figures and initials of names that had been the woeful employment of wretches who had no other way to amuse themselves a bed at one corner with coarse curtains tacked up at the feet to the ceiling because the curtain rings were broken off but a cover lid upon it with a cleanish look though plaguily in tatters and the corners tied up in tassels that the rents in it might go no further the windows dark and double barred the tops boarded up to save mending and only a little four-paned eyelet hole of the casement to let in air more however coming in at broken panes than could come in at that four old turkey-work chairs burst and bottomed the stuffing stirring out an old tottering worm-eaten table that had more nails bestowed in mending it to make it stand than the table cost fifty years ago when new. On the mantelpiece was an iron shove-up candlestick, with a lighted candle in it. Twinkle, twinkle, twinkle. Four of them, I suppose, for a penny. Near that, on the same shelf, was an old looking-glass, cracked through the middle, breaking out into a thousand points. The crack given it, perhaps, in a rage by some poor creature, to whom it gave the representation of his heart's woes in his face. The chimney had two half-towels in it on one side, and one whole one on the other, which showed it had been in better plight but now the very mortar had followed the rest of the tiles in every other place and left the bricks bare an old half-barred stove grate was in the chimney and in that a large stone bottle without a neck filled with baleful yew as an evergreen withered southern wood dead sweet briar and sprigs of rue in flower to finish the shocking description in a dark nook stood an old broken-bottomed cane couch without a squab or coverlid sunk at one corner and unmortised by the failing of one of its worm-eaten legs which lay in two pieces under the wretched piece of furniture it could no longer support and this thou horrid loveless was the bedchamber of the divine clarissa i had leisure to cast my eye on these things for going up softly the poor lady turned not about at our entrance nor till i spoke moved her head she was kneeling in a corner of the room near the dismal window against the table on an old bolster as it seemed to be of the cane couch half covered with her handkerchief her back to the door which was only shut to no need of fastenings her arms crossed upon the table the forefinger of her right hand in her bible she had perhaps been reading in it and could read no longer paper pen sink lay by her book on the table her dress was white damask exceeding neat but her stays seemed not tight laced i was told afterwards that her laces had been cut when she fainted away at her entrance into this cursed place and she had not been solicitous enough about her dress to send for others her head-dress was a little discomposed her charming hair in natural ringlets as you have heretofore described it but a little tangled as if not lately combed, irregularly shading one side of the loveliest neck in the world, as her disordered, rumpled handkerchief did the other. Her face, oh, how altered from what I had seen it, 
yet lovely in spite of all her griefs and sufferings, was reclined when we entered upon her crossed arms, but so as not more than one side of it could be hid. When I surveyed the room around, and the kneeling lady, sunk with majesty too in her white flowing robes, for she had not on a hoop, spreading the dark, though not dirty, floor, and illuminating that horrid corner, her linen beyond imagination white, considering that she had not been undressed ever since she had been here, I thought my concern would have choked me. Something rose in my throat, I know not what, which made me, for a moment, guggle, as it were, for speech, which at last forcing its way, con con confound you both, said I, to the man and woman, is this an apartment for such a lady? And could the cursed devils of her own sex, who visited this suffering angel, see her and leave her in so damned a nook? Sir, we would have had the lady to accept of our own bedchamber, but she refused it. We are poor people, and we expect nobody will stay with us longer than they can help it. You are people chosen purposely, I doubt not, by the damned woman who has employed you, and if your usage of this lady has been but half as bad as your house, you had better never to have seen the light. Up then raised the charming sufferer her lovely face, but with such a significance of woe overspreading it, that I could not for the soul of me help being visibly affected. She waved her hand two or three times towards the door, as if commanding me to withdraw, and displeased at my intrusion, but did not speak. Permit me, madam, not approach one step further without your leave. Permit me for one moment the favour of your ear. No, no, go, go, man, with an emphasis, and would have said more, but, as if struggling in vain for words, she seemed to give up speech for lost, and dropped her head down once more, with a deep sigh, upon her left arm, her right, as if she had not the use of it, numbed, I suppose, self-moved, dropping on her side. Oh, that thou hadst been there, and in my place! But by what I then felt in myself, I am convinced that a capacity of being moved by the distresses of our fellow-creatures is far from being disgraceful to a manly heart. With what pleasure, at that moment, could I have given up my own life, could I but first have avenged this charming creature, and cut the throat of her destroyer, as she emphatically calls thee, though the friend that I best love. And yet at the same time, my heart and my eyes gave way to a softness of which, though not so hardened a wretch as thou, they were never before so susceptible. I dare not approach you, dearest lady, without your leave, but on my knees I beseech you to permit me to release you from this damned house, and out of the power of the cursed woman who was the occasion of your being here. She lifted up her sweet face once more, and beheld me on my knees. Never knew I before what it was to pray so heartily. Are you not— are you not Mr. Belford, sir? I think your name is Belford? It is, madam, and I ever was a worshipper of your virtues, and an advocate for you, and I come to release you from the hands you are in. And in whose to place me? Oh, leave me, leave me! Let me never rise from this spot. Let me never, never more believe in man. This moment, dearest lady, this very moment, if you please, you may depart whithersoever you think fit. You are absolutely free, and your own mistress. I had now as lief die here in this place as anywhere. I will owe no obligation to any friend of him in whose company you have seen me. So pray, sir, withdraw. Then turning to the officer, Mr. Rowland, I think your name is. I am better reconciled to your house than I was at first. If you can but engage that I shall have nobody come near me but your wife, no man, and neither of those women who have sported with my calamities, I will die with you, and in this very corner, and you shall be well satisfied for the trouble you have had with me. I have value enough for that, for see, I have a diamond ring, taking it out of her bosom and our friends will redeem it at a high price when I am gone. But for you, sir, looking at me, I beg you to withdraw. If you mean well by me, God, I hope, will reward you for your good meaning. But to the friend of my destroyer will I not owe an obligation. You will owe no obligation to me nor to anybody. You have been detained for a debt you do not owe. The action is dismissed, and you will only be so good as to give me your hand into the coach, which stands as near to this house as it could draw up, and I will either leave you at the coach-door, or attend you with a server you please, till I see you safe where you would wish to be. Will you then, sir, compel me to be beholden to you? 
you will inexpressibly oblige me madam to command me to do you either service or pleasure why then sir looking at me but why do you mock me in that humble posture rise sir i cannot speak to you else i rose only sir take this ring i have a sister who will be glad to have it at the price it shall be valued at for the former owner's sake out of the money she gives let this man be paid handsomely paid and i have a few valuables more at my lodging dorcas or the man william can tell where that is let them and my clothes at the wicked woman's where you have seen me be sold for the payment of my lodging first and next of your friend's debts that i have been arrested for as far as they will go only reserving enough to put me into the ground anywhere or anyhow no matter tell your friend i wish it may be enough to satisfy the whole demand but if it be not he must make it up himself or if he think fit to draw for it on miss howe she will repay it and with interest if he insist upon it and this sir if you promise to perform you will do me as you offer both pleasure and service and say you will and take the ring and withdraw if i want to say anything more to you you seem to be a humane man i will let you know and so sir god bless you i approached her and was going to speak don't speak sir here's the ring i stood off and won't you take it won't you do this last office for me i have no other person to ask it of else believe me i would not request it of you but take it or not laying it upon the table you must withdraw sir i am very ill i would fain get a little rest if i could i find i am going to be bad again and offering to rise she sunk down through excess of weakness and grief in a fainting fit why loveless wast thou not present thyself why dost thou commit such villainies as even thou art afraid to appear in and yet puttest a weaker heart and head upon encountering with them the maid coming in just then the woman and she lifted her up on a decrepit couch and i withdrew with this roland who wept like a child and said he never in his life was so moved yet so hardened a wretch art thou that i question whether thou wilt shed a tear at my relation they recovered her by hartshorn and water i went down meanwhile for the detestable woman had been below some time oh how i did curse her i never before was so fluent in curses she tried to wheedle me but i renounced her and after she had dismissed the action sent her away crying or pretending to cry because of my behaviour to her you will observe that i did not mention one word to the lady about you i was afraid to do it for twas plain that she could not bear your name your friend and the company you have seen me in were the words nearest to naming you she could speak and yet i wanted to clear your intention of this brutal this sordid-looking villainy i sent up again by roland's wife when i heard that the lady was recovered beseeching her to quit that devilish place and the woman assured her that she was at liberty to do so for that the action was dismissed but she cared not to answer her and was so weak and low that it was almost as much out of her power as inclination the woman told me to speak i would have hastened away for my friend dr h but the house is such a den and the room she was in such a hole that i was ashamed to be seen in it by a man of his reputation especially with a woman of such an appearance and in such uncommon distress and i found there was no prevailing upon her to quit it for the people's bedroom which was neat and lightsome the strong room she was in the wretches told me should have been in better order but that it was but the very morning that she was brought in that an unhappy man had quitted it for a more eligible prison no doubt since there could hardly be a worse being told that she desired not to be disturbed and seemed inclined to doze i took this opportunity to go to her lodgings in covent garden to which dorcas who first discovered her there as will was the setter from church had before given me a direction the man's name is smith a dealer in gloves snuff and such petty merchandise his wife the shopkeeper he a maker of the gloves they sell honest people it seems i thought to have got the woman with me to the lady but she was not within i talked with the man and told him what had befallen the lady owing as i said to a mistake of orders and gave her the character she deserved and desired him to send his wife the moment she came in to the lady directing him with her not doubting that her attendance would be very welcome to her which he promised he told me that a letter was left for her there on saturday and about half an hour before i came another superscribed by the same hand the first by the post the other by a countryman who having been informed of her absence and of all the circumstances they could tell him of it posted away full of concern 
saying that the lady he was sent from would be ready to break her heart at the tidings. I thought it right to take the two letters back with me, and dismissing my coach, took a chair as a more proper vehicle for the lady, if I, the friend of her destroyer, could prevail upon her to leave Rowland's. And here being obliged to give way to an indispensable avocation, I will make thee taste a little in thy turn of the plague of suspense, and break off, without giving thee the least hint of the issue of my further proceedings. I know that those least bear disappointment, who love most to give it. In twenty instances hast thou afforded me proof of the truth of this observation, and I matter not thy raving. Another letter, however, shall be ready. Send for it as soon as thou wilt. But were it not, have I not written enough to convince thee that I am thy ready and obliging friend? J. Belford End of Letter 16